I want to talk about the person of the gospel, the person of the gospel, and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 1, verse number 2 to verse number 4, it says, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that we can be here today and be a part of this service. Thank you, Lord, that we can open up the Word of God and hear the Scripture being read, the sense being made of it. And I pray, Lord, that today you would speak to our hearts and bless this church. Help us, Lord, to grow, become stronger. I pray just bring revival to our hearts. Lord, uh, we need to be more concerned about the lost more concerned about the state of our own souls. Help us, Lord, as we focus upon you this morning, just to begin to ask questions of our own lives, whether we truly are doing everything we can do, whether we truly are surrendered to you. We're so grateful that you are a great example for us. Help us, Lord, to learn from you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Of all the things the Apostle Paul could have spoke about in the first chapter of the book of Romans, of course we know the book of Romans is a very doctrinal book. I know they're all doctrinal, but when I'm talking about doctrinal, I'm talking about there's a lot of theological arguments that you find within the book of Romans. There's a lot of concepts that make up the foundation of our salvation, of the Christian life, of our surrender, of how God uses us. Romans is just chocked full of doctrines that way. So it's not a surprise that at the beginning of this book, the Apostle Paul, after he introduces himself, he says, let me tell you about Jesus Christ. Because this, my friend, is our foundation. This is the foundation of all doctrine. This is the foundation of our life. This is our life. This is the center of all things for each one of us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, it says, According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Amen. He is everything. He is what you need today wherever your heart and mind is today, wherever your thoughts are, whatever your problem is, whatever your battle is, can I tell you that there is one place you need to look, and that is at the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your answer. He will help you. He will give you the victory. He will help you overcome. He will help your family. He will bring you together. He will save you from that sinful lifestyle. Uh, He will save your soul if you need to be saved. He really is your answer, amen? And so I want to talk a little bit about Jesus Christ today, and it'll be a simple message, but the first thing I want to talk about is Christ, the promised Savior, the promised Savior. In verse number two, we see see how it says, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So promised means to bring to or to announce 
or descend before or forward. <clears throat> so basically the Old Testament is sending forward a message and that message is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Old Testament is about Jesus. In fact, you'll see him throughout the word of God. He's referring to the Old Testament scriptures here. Uh, the promises and the prophecies that we see about Jesus Christ, the types, the shadows, and the people, the places, the things, the names. I mean, you can just, whatever you read in the Old Testament, you can somehow see how God is revealing Jesus Christ through those particular things. You look at the tabernacle. <clears throat> there is not one piece of the tabernacle that is not in some way representing the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. And it's powerful, from the badger skins, to the ropes, to the pegs, to the, uh, to the type of metal, to the furniture, uh, to, where, to how it was built, to the size of the rooms, uh, you name it, it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ, amen? In fact, the tabernacle is probably the uh, greatest type in the Old Testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first promise given to man about salvation was a promise of Christ. See, salvation isn't just a message. Salvation is a person. Amen? So what the Old Testament is telling us is not a methodology. It's not saying, here, jump through these hoops and you can be saved. Right from the beginning, the Lord made it very clear that salvation is not in a methodology. Salvation is in a person. It's in Christ and Him alone. Uh, we see that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman... Between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is talking about the Messiah. It's talking about the suffering that he would go through for our sins, but also talks about the victory that he would have over Satan and Satan's uh, dominion over mankind. He's going to win this battle. <clears throat> In Matthew chapter 21, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 42, it says, Jesus saith unto them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In Luke chapter 24, verse 25, it says, Then he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I'll tell you, I'd love to hear that message. Walking along and Jesus Christ taking the Bible from the book of Genesis and on and explaining himself to you through those verses. My goodness, they must have had a good time. Amen. The Old Testament, <coughs> excuse me, is chocked full of promises about the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, Christ, the pre-existent Son. The pre-existent Son. In Romans chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. You know, there's a great verse of John three sixteen. Many of you know that verse by heart. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, it's written that way for a very specific reason. Many modern Bible translations today, they change the way this, this is written, where it says that he is the only begotten son. 
Now, we know in the scriptures, <clears throat> angels are called the sons of God. We know that we as Christians, in 1 John chapter 3, it says that we are the sons of God. Um, but only Jesus is called the only begotten son of God. But it's amazing how many Bibles today are taking out that little phraseology there, the only begotten Son of God, and making it sound just like it would an angel or a man or somebody else. No, Jesus Christ is very special, amen? And I want us to see this. The Bible says in John three eighteen, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In 1 John 4, 9, and this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. This verse is very interesting. I like looking at verses like this and, and uh, finding out what, what kind of tense he's talking about here. Now, he says that, that God sent his only begotten son into the world. Now, what does that mean? Well, what that means is, is that Jesus didn't start in this world. <laughs> that Jesus existed before this world. And not only did Jesus exist before this world, but the only begotten Son existed before this world. So it says here that he sent his only begotten Son into the world. See, this is one of the tests of knowing whether there's a spirit of Antichrist or not. Anybody that'll try to challenge you on the fact that Jesus Christ pre-existed is of the spirit of Antichrist. The Bible says you must believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Amen? Amen. So when you're saying have come, that means that I was someplace before and now I am there. Amen? If Jesus Christ was born on earth, then he has not come. He started here, just like you and I. Now, the Mormons believe that you come too. <laughs> they believe that you existed before you were actually born on earth. And so there's a lot of doctrinal problems with that. Amen? And they say you were placed into a body here on earth. So you also have come into the world according to their doctrine. But no, only the only begotten Son of God. He is the only one that has come into the world and has been sent by God the Father. Amen? He is not the son of God because of the virgin birth. See, that made him the son of man. That proved that he's God, but it didn't make him the son of God, but it made him the son of man. And he took upon himself the seed of David. And we know that uh, Mary was of the seed of David. In the book of Luke, if you look at the genealogies, going back to Nathan, we look at Joseph in the book of Matthew chapter 1. We see that the genealogy goes through Solomon. Amen. And that was the royal line. So it's very interesting how that these two lines end up with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why is the virgin birth so important? Well, it's interesting because in Babylon, when, when Israel turned their heart away from God... And they began to worship false gods, uh, especially with King Manasseh, who was really, God just says, I've had enough. He was filled up. He says, you've taken it too far. And uh, 
The Bible says that God pronounced a curse upon Solomon's seed. And the Bible says that no seed from you shall prosper on the throne of Israel. So that's interesting. So basically what God did is he he stopped the prosperity of the, the royal line at the time of Babylon where they're taken into captivity with Jeconiah. So that means since that point, there is no person through the line of Solomon that could have ever taken the throne of Israel. They had no king. And according to the Lord's curse, they would never have a king. The royal line was stopped. You ever wonder why would God do that? (laughs) Why would God stop the royal line when when he really does want a king on the throne of Israel? Well, because he was setting them up for the real king. (laughs) Do you understand? That's why Mary was involved. And that's why going back to Genesis chapter 3.15, it talks about the seed of a woman, not the seed of a man. It talks about one born of a woman. And so Joseph's seed was not involved in Jesus' birth. We know that the Bible says that the Holy Ghost overshadowed Mary. So basically that curse that was placed upon the royal line, Solomon's seed, is not a part of the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet, because he was still born through the Davidic line through Nathan, and then brought into the royal line by adoption, having no other father on earth, qualified him to be in the royal line. But the seed was cursed. But he wasn't of the seed of Joseph, the seed of the woman. Amen. So what the Lord did is he designed the virgin birth to make it so that we would know that Jesus Christ is the only person that could ever sit upon the throne of Israel. Nobody else could. Nobody is qualified. He is the only one that could ever sit upon that throne. God designed it that way. Amen. So he had to come through the seed of man, but his sonship didn't begin with the virgin birth. He was the son of God before. In Luke 1.32, it says, He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. David is the father after the flesh, but Jesus and the father in heaven is after the spirit. Abraham had two sons. Remember, who was his first son? Who was Abraham's first son? Ishmael. Who was his second son? Isaac. Who was the promised son? Isaac. Who was older, Isaac or Ishmael? Ishmael. This is interesting. Hebrews 11, verse 17, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Now, he wasn't the only son, but he was the only son of promise. He was the only unique son. 
that came through the Lord. Amen? So the Lord is defining for us what he means when he says, talks about Jesus Christ as being the only begotten son. Angels are called the sons of God. You are called the sons of God, but you are not the only begotten son of God. That belongs to Jesus Christ and to him alone. Jesus, who is the word, has always had a special relationship with his father. In John chapter 1, it says this, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now we know the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, Bible, what they did in the first verses is in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was, they put the article A in there, was a God. So they changed it. Why? Was it because the Greek text had the article A in there? <laughs> no. <clears throat> in fact, great extensive searches were done for any manuscript that would have the article A within it to show that the word was a God instead of God and none could ever be found. It was plagiarism. And it was plagiarism because it didn't fit their doctrine. Jesus can't be God, but Jesus can be a God. Amen? But Jesus is God. Amen. And he's got a special relationship with his Father, and that's what it means by the word with. And the word was with God. He was with him, meaning that he was at the source of God. He was at the source of what God was. He belonged to God because he is God, amen? <clears throat> and he is the only one that has that kind of a relationship with God because he is God. You say, that's pretty complicated. Well, all I know is I'm just gonna believe what the Bible says, amen? John 17, verse five, it says this, and now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So Jesus, in his earthly form, while he's praying to the Father in heaven, he says, Lord, Father, would you glorify me with the same glory that I had with you before all of this existed? In the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Amen? So Jesus Christ is God. We'll have many people uh, from the Muslim faith that will challenge you as to whether Jesus Christ is God. Now, they're going to set you up with a bad argument. They'll say, tell me one time where Jesus said, I am God, thinking that that will prove whether he's God or not. Well, Jesus did actually affirm that he is God. But I'm going to tell you something. The fact that he didn't just go around touting it shows you that he truly was God. <laughs> because he went on to say, he says, my witness alone isn't, isn't worth anything. He says, there's a witness of my father and the works that he sent me to do. See, you always need two or three witnesses. So anybody that is God on earth that would walk around and say, I'm God, can't be trusted. So the Lord knew that he was setting himself up with his witnesses. 
In fact, John the Baptist was one of them. <laughs> so he had several witnesses set up around him to prove to people that I am God. So don't, let, don't fall for that argument when people say, <clears throat> you know, if, if Jesus Christ personally said that I am God, then I'll believe he's God. I would tell them this. If Jesus Christ would have only personally said that he was God, then I wouldn't believe that he is God. Because he didn't establish himself by simply pumping himself up. He established himself through the witnesses around him and through the works that the Father gave him to do. Proved that he was God. Amen? Number three, Christ the perpetual king. Jesus will become a king that will never lose his throne as every king has done. There's never been a king that's perpetually on the throne. You know, I know we got King Charles in England now, you know. But whatever he does over there, whatever that throne means, all I know is this, there will be a day that he will not be on that throne. It will always change. We see that in our study through Daniel. You know, you got these guys in their prime. They're standing there on their throne. They're saying, whoa, I'm just, I, I am just it. It doesn't take long, and they're off of it. <laughs> Amen. That's just the way it is with mankind. But Jesus Christ, when he sets himself up on that throne, he will perpetually be king. There will never be a day where he says, I used to be king. <laughs> he will always be king. Amen. He was made of the seed of David. He was the line of the Messiah. But it especially relates to Christ's kingship here. In 1 Chronicles 17, verse 11, this is a, the Davidic covenant. It says, And it shall come to pass when thy days be expired, talking to David, that thou must go to be with thy fathers, that I will raise up thy seed after thee, which shall be of thy sons, and I will establish his kingdom. <clears throat> he shall build me in house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him that was before thee, but I will settle him in mine house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forevermore. In 2 Samuel 7, 16, it says, And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. Amen. And that's talking about Jesus Christ. The seed of David was vital in a person recognizing who Jesus Christ was. When a blind man would see Jesus Christ, if he truly had faith in who Jesus Christ would, was, this is what he would say, have mercy upon me, thou son of David. Thou son of David. Because throughout the scriptures, the Messiah was said to come from the seed of David. And he'd be the son of David. So many times these people that were poor and they were broken, they, were, uh, they, they needed healing and they'd had leprosy and they were blind or, or maybe they couldn't make it to Jesus because they were just too sick. They would cry out and they'd say, have mercy upon me, thou son of David. Jesus' ears perked up. See, because it's not there, <clears throat> folks, it's not your faith that does anything for you. It's the person. It's the person. 
See, just because the blind men said, heal me, doesn't mean that they'd be healed. It's because they believed the person. See, the only way that you're going to go forward in life is not because you have faith in yourself or faith that God will do something for you. The only way you're going to have victory when Jesus becomes that person that all of your faith is fixed upon. Your salvation to go to heaven is in a person. That's why I become very disappointed in my people, the Mennonite people, when they began to believe a doctrine that their faith saves them. Now, I know we're saved through our faith, but the doctrine has evolved <coughs> that my faith saves me and then it continues to, to maintain that salvation as I go through life because they just cannot let go of themselves. <laughs> See, your faith is powerless. It has nothing. You, you, you couldn't get yourself saved, nor could you maintain your salvation through your faith. But there's one thing your faith could do is get you to the person of salvation. <clears throat> Once you got to that person, then your salvation became sure. Whether your faith is strong or weak, whether it died the day after, whether all of a sudden, hey, I don't know if I believe this anymore. <laughs> now, the Bible says that you will believe it. In fact, the tense of the verse where it says, for God so loved the world that uh, whosoever believeth in him, that tense of that word is talking about an ongoing belief. You ever had somebody come to you and give you a hypothetical situation? What if somebody would stop believing in Jesus? This is what I'll tell you. That if you stopped believing in Jesus, you never believed in Jesus. Because your belief was in vain. It was this up here, not this down here. All I know is this, that anybody that has truly trusted Christ will always trust Christ. That's what the verse says. It says those that are truly saved, their belief will continue. <laughs> and I've told you about people that I've known that have gone backsliding after they got saved and I'd go to talk to them and say, hey, you know you're not doing right. And they say, yeah, I know. <laughs> they had it all figured out. They knew. It wasn't like, oh, I don't believe in God anymore. I've... I've stopped being a Christian now. When people talk like that, they're just basically telling you, I've never received Christ. There's a big movement today within the contemporary world with a lot of contemporary rock musicians that they're turning away from their faith in Christ. They're renouncing Jesus. I, I no longer believe in Jesus. Well, that's because you never did. You never did. Your faith was vain from the beginning. You see? Oh, no. Salvation, my friend, is in a person. Since I got saved, I put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, since that day, I cannot lay to the charge of Christ anything that would detract him from being everything that he said he ever was. He has always been everything. And there's never been a day that he stopped. 
And anyone in this room would have to say the same thing. You know, I've messed up. I've had Christians around me messed up. I've had family mess up. But you know who's never messed up? Jesus. There's never a reason why you would stop believing on him if you said you believed on him in the first place. Amen? He came to die for us. The Bible says, He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, which we should, when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. That was the picture you'd see in the Old Testament of the tabernacle, the badger skins over top of the tabernacle. Badger skin? Pictures Jesus Christ. Well, that's not very flattering. Well, Jesus Christ wasn't trying to flatter you with his looks. So he looked very normal. He looked very human. He looked very weathered, just like a badger skin. <laughs> Amen. And that was the one that covered the tent. He's despised and rejected of men, man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. They say it's a very hard job to work at a slaughterhouse for sheep. Because when you take that knife to the throat of a lamb, that lamb will look at you and lick your hand as you slit its throat. See, that's the nature that the Lord personified for us here in Isaiah 53. He opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Simple. Christ, number four, and his powerful resurrection. Notice what it says here, and I'll be done after this point. It says, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. So he was declared to be the Son of God with power. Declared means to mark out definitely, to determine, to appoint, to constitute. So basically, something about Jesus has caused us to declare that he is the Son of God with power. With power. So this is what has been declared of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I found this was interesting. Jesus is the declaration of God. It says in John 1.18, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Jesus Christ's boundary and limit has been set concerning he being the very son of God. There's no discrepancy here. 
There's no argument. <laughs> There's nothing you can say to tell me that Jesus Christ is not the very Son of God. It's already been declared. And there's a reason why it was declared. Let no man tell you that Jesus is just a man or that he is just an angel. He has been declared the Son of God. Amen? This is how Romans begins. This is how our book begins. Making this declaration, setting this important limitation, this important standard that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He was not declared the Son of God. Or he, sorry, I got this wrong here. But he was declared the Son of God as God's Son with power. Not just a positional truth, but a practical truth. So when he's saying that he's a Son of God with power, it's not just saying because he's God, he's powerful. It's saying there's something that happened that caused me to declare him the Son of God with power. Now what happened? What did Jesus do? What work could he have done? The word power means to be able, to have an ability, to achieve something. And so that's what I'm declaring him. I'm declaring the Son of God with power. Jesus Christ's power is seen in his resurrection. See, this is where the declaration is made. Now, you can say he was a son of God before, but now what we're doing is we're making a declaration to all mankind that Jesus Christ is the son of God with power. And not just because he's God. Not just because he created the world, not just because he spoke things into existence, because he did something that is beyond what anybody else could have ever done. And that's take something that is dead and make it alive. That's what declares him the Son of God. It says, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. <clears throat> We're not just talking about a religious figure, but the Son of God that has the ability to bring life from that which is dead. That is important for you and me. Without this power, without this ability, there would be no need to write the book of Romans. There would be no reason to have a Bible reading schedule. There'd be no reason to memorize scripture. There'd be no reason to come to church today and, and gather together with the people of God. But because Jesus Christ had the power of the resurrection, that's why you're here today. That's why you think of much of this book that's in your hands. But without that, there's nothing. If Jesus is just God, but he proved it, by the resurrection from the dead. Why is that so important? We are dead in our sins. What would it help you to have a God that is even all-powerful if you were dead in your sins? <laughs> in fact, it would be pretty useless. But if that same God 
took upon himself the form of man, died a man's death, went into the grave, and then defeated death by the resurrection, now we can declare him the Son of God with power. Amen? And now we can say, guess what? (laughs) I'm going to read this book. Guess what? I'm going to make much of the people of God. I'm going to be a part of the work of God. In fact, you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it gives you all kinds of things that would be in vain if Jesus Christ didn't raise from the grave. (laughs) Amen? In fact, I have a couple of those. I'm going to read that to you. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16, it says this, For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Think about your family members, grandma and grandpa, Great-grandpa, great-grandma, all these people, you'd have to say, guess what? I'll never see them again. They're all perished if there is no resurrection. It says, in this life only, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. This resurrection is everything. So when he starts this book by saying, that we declare the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. That is vital for us. He's saying this is why there's a verse 5 after verse 4. You understand if he couldn't write verses 2 to 4, no need to write verse 5. You could have just closed the book and said, it's all over, boys. <laughs> They've all perished. And you are yet in your sins. But now that he has risen, <laughs> we can say, I declare him the son of God with power. With the ability. The ability to raise us from the grave because he rose himself from the grave. And therefore, we will write verse number five. And we'll write verse number six. And we'll take it home and we'll read it. And we'll memorize it. And we'll take it into our hearts. And we'll get up in the morning. And we'll tell people about Jesus Christ being the Son of God with power. Because that is all that matters. That is all that matters. See, our Christianity needs to get back to the center. And that's to Jesus Christ. Sometimes we can have a lot of spiritual conversation and yet we never name the name of Jesus in that conversation. We never talk about the Son of God. We never talk about what he has done for us. But we're oh so spiritual. Folks, we need to get our churches back to the center. The hub of the wheel. Amen. Jesus Christ the Son of God, declared to be so with all power. According to the spirit of holiness, what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you this, that if there would have been one sin 
on Jesus, there would have been no resurrection from the dead. The reason why he could break through death to life is because of his holiness. In fact, the scriptures are clear. I'm going to find this scripture here. I've been bouncing back a little bit. In Psalm 16, verse 10, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Now, Jesus Christ has never been in the burning fires of hell. Now, there's doctrines out there in a lot of evangelical circles that are teaching that Jesus went to the fires. It's not true. Now, the reason why that is, it's because there was no need for him to go there. The payment of your sin is not in the fire. (laughs) The payment of your sin is in the death. And he did that. He died. In fact, upon the cross, he says, it is finished. The payment is made. He didn't need to go to any fire. And the word hell here is the word Hades, also Sheol in, in, the, in the Hebrew. It's talking about the locality where the fires were, but also where Abraham's bosom was. And that place was called hell. It was called Hades. But the Bible says after Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he led captivity captive. That means all those within paradise he took with him. That day he died, he said to the thief, he said, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. And the Bible says he went into the heart of the earth three days and three nights. It's talking about paradise. It's talking about Hades. It's talking about that locality. But later on when the apostle Paul said he was caught up to the third heaven and he was taught things in paradise. Paradise had moved. It was no longer in the heart of the earth. Now paradise was in the third heaven (laughs) because Jesus Christ took captivity captive and he brought paradise up to glory because he presented his blood before. (laughs) See, until he presented his blood literally before his father, there was no way that paradise could go into the third heaven. But when he entered into that holy temple, And he offered himself as a sacrifice. The door was opened. The Bible says now by him, we can boldly come before the throne of grace. Amen. Through Jesus Christ. (laughs) How? Through the resurrection. If there was no resurrection, he wouldn't have gone up to glory. He wouldn't have presented himself as a sufficient sacrifice for your sins. When he was raised from the grave and the ladies came to him that morning and saw him, they wanted to touch him. He says, touch me not, for I have not yet ascended unto my father. But then as he ran towards the, 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 the disciples, wanting to tell them what they saw, they met him on the road again. And this time, he allowed them to come and touch his feet and hug him. What took place? Well, he said, until I ascended to the Father, he ascended, presented himself, and then came back. Wow. You're saying the resurrection isn't important? (laughs) See, he's declared the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. 
by the resurrection from the dead. It's vital. <laughs> I had one person say, well, I get saved, but I don't believe in the resurrection. I said, you can believe Jesus is God. You can believe that he died for you. You can believe that he went to the grave. But if you don't believe that he broke free of that grave and rose again, you cannot be saved. But I believe Jesus is God. <laughs> You're not declaring him the son of God with power. You're holding something back from him that he rightly deserves. That's why the Bible says, for with a heart, man believeth unto righteousness. It says, if thou shalt confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. The resurrection, amen. Powerful truth. That's why, according to the spirit of holiness, you know, the Bible talks about two resurrections. It's the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. There's the first resurrection and then there's the second resurrection. The Bible says, blessed is he that is a part of the first resurrection. <laughs> but if you're a part of the second resurrection, you're cursed. Now, in the Bible, you may find in the same verse where it says, oh, there's a resurrection of the just and the unjust. In fact, the Bible says, um, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. There's just a little word and in between the just and the unjust. But you know, in scripture, in reality, there's a thousand years. There's a thousand years between the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. But all I know is this, that if you are a part of the resurrection of the just, you are in perfection. Just. Why are you in the resurrection of the just? Because you did good? <laughs> The same word just that we'll find in the book of Romans is from the word justified. Justified, declared righteous. Are you declared righteous because God didn't analyze your life and found you fitting for the kingdom of God? <laughs> that resurrection of the just has nothing to do with what you've done. It has to do with who you placed your faith in. See, Jesus was declared with the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. That means resurrection from the dead means that you had to be holy. Thou will not leave my soul in hell. I will not see corruption because he's perfect. He couldn't have stayed in hell. He couldn't have stayed in Haiti. There is no way that death could have held Jesus Christ because he was perfect and holy. And in the same way that Jesus Christ cannot be kept, you, as a born-again believer, cannot be kept from the resurrection. The resurrection of the just. <laughs> according to the spirit of holiness. Because you are being resurrected according to his record. You're being resurrected as Jesus Christ was resurrected. Not on, your not on your merits, 
but on his merits. Amen? I wanted to read you one passage yet here. 1 Corinthians 15. So, when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, you're going to resurrect, not because you're something, but because Jesus Christ got you the victory through his holiness, through his perfection. He had to raise because he was perfect. (laughs) And now that his righteousness is placed on you, you have to be raised according to that same spirit of holiness because of the Son of God. Amen.